Let us pray for receptive hearts in the reading and preaching of God's holy word. God, source of all light, by your word, you give light to our souls, pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be open to your life-changing truth. Through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. An Old Testament reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, beginning with verse 1 to 6, the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elijah of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. She was elderly and said she needed to talk. It was many, many years ago, and she came into my office, and she sat down in the chair right across from my desk and didn't even really give me time to get up and walk over to sit down next to her. She said, I've been holding this in for 35 years, and I have to tell you, God wants me to tell someone. And she proceeded to describe how, for 35 years, she had harbored a romantic attachment to a man, not her husband, and she had never told a soul. She had never acted on it. She had never had an affair. She had not even had an emotional affair. She had kept her distance, but it had been weighing on her soul the shame and the humiliation she felt because her heart was in a place that she couldn't, she couldn't dislodge it from where it was. And she feared that if opportunity ever arose, she would betray her marriage vows. She was elderly and had held it in for 35 years. She began to wonder, am I even a Christian? How can I harbor these thoughts and feelings inside of me and claim that Jesus is Lord? Where is my Christian victory? I'm supposed to be an overcomer. I'm supposed to triumph over this. I'm supposed to be able to subdue this. Why am I so messed up? Can I really be even a Christian? And I think it's a place that a lot of us find ourselves with that area of struggle or sin, that thing that you did in the past or that was done to you, that experience that you had that weighs down on you and you just wonder where I am with God. Can I be, can I really be a believer and be this messed up? And we're going to look at a passage in a book that is all about that. We're in Galatians. It's Paul's letter to a church that had received the gospel but was being dragged back into a crushing legalism. 
We're going to look at Galatians 2. We're going to look at verses 15 to 21 because it's the word of God and it's a word of life to people like us. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, that is by what he does, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For though the law, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What does Paul say about you who trust in Jesus? If your faith is in him, if you're looking, whether it's a strong faith or a weak faith, if the direction of your faith is Jesus, and you're saying, Jesus, my, my eggs are in your basket. You've got to save me. You're the one. If that's where you are, what he says, firstly, he says, if you've, you've already been justified. He says it, it couldn't be more clear in verse 16. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, in other words, you don't get reconciled to God by becoming a good person because we're not good people. The Bible is way more honest about what mixed bags we are. It says you won't be justified that way, but you will be right with God. You'll be justified in by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we've put our faith in Christ Jesus, verse 16, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. He's, he's repeated it three times. You will never be good enough for God. You will never measure up. Your devotions will never be consistent enough. Your obedience will not, never be wholehearted enough. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor or to gain his favor, uh, but rather you are justified simply by turning outside of yourself to him to look to him to save. It's, it's what Abraham experienced back in, in Genesis 15, where, where it's what Rena read to us, where, where God promised to bless him. And, and even before he had been circumcised or anything, it says he believed. And his faith was reckoned as righteousness. He was treated as if he was righteous, even though he was not on account of his believing. Verse 21, I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Christ died to justify us. Now, understand justification is not a change in us. Justification is a change in how God views us, how God chooses to see us. Tim Keller tells a story of a kid in high school and the kid, uh, you know, was, was in in the school hallway, it was between classes. The principal was right there. This kid walked over to another student and just clocked him right between the eyes, knocked him out, stone cold, could have killed him. Kid, his head smacks on the ground, and he is out, out. He's unconscious. He's gone. Clocked him. And, and the principal sees this. 
The principal reaches up and he grabs the kid by the shoulders and he's yelling at him. He says, you're going to be expelled for this. And the kid says, okay, before, before you say anything else, I want you to walk over and look at his right pocket. And he walks over and he looks at his right pocket. And the kid has a gun in his right pocket and his hand is around the gun with his finger on the trigger. And so this kid explains to the principal, he had a gun and he was going to kill someone. Yes, I clocked him between the eyes. Now, he did a pretty good job of justifying himself. But notice, he did not change his behavior. He didn't say, you got me, I'm so sorry, I'll go back and unpunch the guy. I'll never punch another person in my life. No. Rather, what changed was not his actions. What changed was the principal's view of his actions. And that's what justification does. It doesn't make me not a sinner. What it does is it changes how God views my being a sinner. He views me as one who is righteous, as one who is worthy, because Jesus was righteous and worthy in my place. It's reckoned as righteousness. Uh, that's... That's what justification is. It doesn't change the behavior that you've done. What it does is change the view of God toward that behavior. And to be justified is to be a Christian. Now, in a legal context, to be justified was to be pronounced righteous. It's the gavel comes down. Not guilty. Yeah. And so in that forensic sense, it is a declaration that the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to your account so that everything that Jesus did is now something that you did. And all the favor and blessing that Jesus earned by being so perfect and so righteous has now transferred from his account to your account just as your guilt transferred from your account to his account. It's the great exchange. We're going to talk about that. We're in Galatians. You talk about that in Galatians. But the point is that, that the bill for your salvation has already been paid and it's been paid in full and for you who believe in Jesus as your savior as your king your judgment day has moved from the future back into the past and it has been paid in full and you're never going to face an angry and wrathful God who will condemn you and send you to hell because Jesus has already suffered hell on the cross when the father turned his back on him so he will never ever turn his back on you that means you are now justified simply by looking outside of yourself to Jesus and trusting Jesus to be everything he says he is and to do everything he says he can do. It's what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness because Jesus gives you what we don't have ourselves. Uh, it's like if you know the feeling, and I've read about it, of, of going and buying new shoes, and you put on my first job in high school was as a shoe salesman, I kid you not, uh, you get a new pair of shoes, and that first day you put them on, and you're walking around, and you feel like a new person. Or better yet, a full set of clothes. You know, you get out the brand new fall wardrobe, just broken in. And you just feel like a million dollars. I am new. I am born again. I have been brought from death to life. And yet, you know, within a day or two, it's, it's gone. Imagine that feeling, permanent, when you were clothed 
in the righteousness of Jesus, eternally new, eternally young, eternally alive, eternally loved. And it's not that God doesn't see you because you're covered in Jesus. It's that he sees you, but he sees you with all the love and affection that he has for his son, Jesus Christ, because your lives are so intertwined now as one united to Jesus and his death and resurrection as one spiritually entwined with him, clothed with his righteousness. And so you are justified. It's the In the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, those whom God effectually calls, he also justifies. Not by infusing righteousness into them, not by making us righteous. That comes later. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sin and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, even the faith is a gift of God. The Latin phrase used during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was simul justus et pacator, simultaneously righteous, justified, and a sinner, pacator. Paul says, if you believe in Jesus, you're already righteous. You've already been justified. But, second point, he's also saying something else. He's saying that even as apostles... This is Paul speaking with Peter. We still identify with our sin. It's positively striking. If you listen to Paul's language here, he is describing a conversation with St. Peter, and he's arguing with Peter. And if you think Peter was the first pope as the first bishop of Rome, he's showing you that the pope is not infallible because he's telling him he's wrong. But he's arguing with Peter, and he's talking about himself, and he's talking about Peter and the other apostles. And these are the two greatest Christians in history, to our knowledge, at least based on their accomplishments and their closeness to Jesus. And he says in verse 17, it is evident that we ourselves are sinners. For Paul, that was a given. It was just assumed. Those who are justified remain sinners at the same time. He says in verse 18 that they're frequent flip-flops back and forth about which Jewish laws they have to obey themselves. It only serves to prove, prove that I am a lawbreaker. It's remarkable because St. Paul is saying in the Bible, so everyone will always know, that both he and Peter are moral failures. They are losers. And they are justified and righteous in the eyes of their heavenly father. See, it's so different because every religion tells you that you used to be a sinner, but now you're righteous. Or you, you're making measurable progress, quantifiable progress toward becoming righteous. You used to be 50% sinner and 50% righteous, but now you're like 70% righteous and only 30% sinful. And, and for these early Christians, uh, it was 100%, 100%. I am 100% sin. There is nothing righteous in me that is in my sinful nature, Paul can say. And yet he can also turn right around and say, and I am positively righteous and worthy of every blessing in the heavenly realms because Jesus Christ has secured those for me and my heavenly Father who loves me has applied them to my account fully, finally, and forever, and nothing can change that. Simul justus et peccator, both 
100% sinner and 100% righteous in the eyes of our Father. It's amazing because it carves out an emotionally safe place to own your weaknesses, to own your brokenness, to own your own failings and not have to defend yourself when you're arguing with your spouse, not having to be the one that's right, not having to be the one that wins the argument, having the permission to just say, I'm probably wrong here and I probably can't see it. I'm really sorry, but I have this safe place to be both loved and wrong. That's what the gospel gives us, simultaneously righteous and sinners. It's what Paul says in Romans 4, 5. He says, to the man who does not work, doesn't do anything, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Do you hear that? Those declared righteous are the wicked, not the formerly wicked. The church isn't the ex-wicked club. Nope. Wicked, right here, right now. You're looking at him. You say, Greg, you're being a little extreme here. But am I? I want to ask you what the greatest commandment is according to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What was the greatest command? A lot of things you're supposed to do, but there's one that's over, over, over all of them. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart. All of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. We drill this into us so that we can get to the freedom so that you don't have to keep hiding. All of your heart. That means, that means to love God with 15 sixteenths of your heart is what? So this is the greatest commandment. Then to love God with 15 sixteenths of your heart, to love God with 92% of your strength is what? It is the greatest sin. And that means that I am pretty much continually engaging in the greatest sin against the greatest commandment, which makes me the greatest of sinners. I have not obeyed the great commandment for 10 seconds my entire life because I am at best a mixed bag of motives and inconsistency and weakness. And, and that means, yes, I am wicked. I am broken. I am damaged. I am a big, shameful sinner. And I am worthy and righteous in the eyes of God because my justification has not changed the fact that I'm a sinner. What it has changed is the way that God looks upon me. He looks upon me and he looks upon you and he sees you in your weakness. He sees you and he validates you eternally with the righteousness of Christ to be known and to be loved. It's to the one who does not work that his faith is reckoned as righteousness because he simply looks outward to Jesus with the empty Hands of faith. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, all you need is nothing, but most people don't have that. So different from the way many of us were taught in the past. Many of us were taught that the way to spiritual growth is that you become a Christian and then you vow to be righteous and you vow to then live out of a certain identity that says that 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 real Christians are holy and obedient and faithful. And so any struggle with sin, any weakness, any personal failing then becomes downplayed. The idea is that I tell you that I am now righteous. I'm a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I'm victorious. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm an overcomer. And and by constantly projecting that image outwardly, and those things are true of you in Christ, but by projecting that outwardly, somehow, magically, the power of indwelling sin dissipates 
And so what you find yourself doing then is trying to convince those around you and convince yourself that you're not really a sinner anymore. You're just a Christian who struggles with some problems. But the problem is that it's not honest. It's not what the apostles do. They don't try to say, I'm just one, I'm not the other. I'm righteous now. That's my identity. I'm not a sinner anymore. I used to be a sinner, but I repented of that. No, they're saying, I'm a sinner right now. I'm wicked right now. And I am loved right now. The fake it till you make it school of Christian growth, friends, will leave you faking it. And you're never going to make it. And it's going to leave you hiding and alone. And when people do see the cracks and see the real sin come out, they're going to be shocked and you're going to feel so ashamed because you haven't entered in to the emotionally safe spiritual place the gospel gives you that is promised right here in this letter to the Galatians that you can be fully a sinner and be fully righteous and worthy in the eyes of God. Paul is saying, I am a moral failure. Peter and I are both lawbreakers. We are not ex-sinners, former sinners, sinners emeritus, but we're still sinners in the hands of a gracious God who sees us and loves us perfectly by clothing us with a righteousness he made specially for us so that we would not be naked. I mean, if you do the ex-sinner thing, eventually what you've got is a Bible that has to be rewritten. You've got the author to the Hebrews talking about the faith of Rahab, the former prostitute. You have Jesus speaking to the former thief on the cross next to him. You you have Paul saying, I used to be the chief of all sinners, but now I'm righteous. It doesn't add up. Now, does it mean the gospel doesn't change you? Oh, the gospel changes you. But it doesn't change you by giving you a mask to wear. It changes you by giving you the love of a father. And the gospel doesn't change us completely in this life, not even in the ballpark. What happens when we project this outward righteousness is our churches become unsafe places to be a sinner loved by Jesus. Instead, everybody is going around with their mask, trying to look righteous, trying to fake it, trying to make it, trying to present an image of one who knows God and obeys God and believes God in all things and is faithful to God all the time, rather than one who says, actually, I'm not, but he loves me and he is faithful to me. And that is changing my heart and winning my heart and buying for me a loyalty bought by the blood of Jesus that makes me want to work hard to try to actually change. And then it makes us invisible If we have to wear this mask, it obfuscates the hardship, the struggle, the pain that you experience when you really are trying to follow Jesus Christ with self-sacrificial obedience as both Paul and Peter were in their fallen, broken state as those redeemed and loved by Christ. It's why the apostles all look like idiots in the four Gospels. I mean, you know it's remarkable when you read in the Gospels what an idiot Matthew was. Or Peter, when he says just something totally inappropriate, denies Jesus. Or when Jesus tells St. Peter that he's Satan, get behind me, Satan. Like, as a religious leader, I wouldn't really want you all hearing Jesus say that I'm Satan. That would not make my job easier. And yet, it would not be in the Bible had Peter not given permission. I mean, we read about it in in Gospels that were written by his friends. And Peter was the chief among the apostles in Jerusalem and and later in Antioch. and, and, And it simply would not have happened. You wouldn't have heard what a loser Matthew was unless you heard about it in a Gospel, according to Matthew, that Matthew wrote. Because he wanted you to know, we're sinners too. 
we're broken too. We're lawbreakers too. I mean, you look at the Bible, all of the heroes of the Bible, you got Abraham who is portrayed as fearful and doubting God, doubting his promises, who passes off his wife as his sister and almost ends up putting her in an adulterous affair. You've got David, who um, was an adulterer and a murderer, and also a man after God's own heart. You've got Peter, who denied Jesus three times and got called Satan. You've got Paul, who presents himself as the chief of all sinners. You know, the, the reality is, in the, in the Bible, you've got one hero. That hero's name is Jesus. He is altogether worthy. He is altogether righteous. He is altogether worthy of everything we can give him. Because he's the only one qualified to rescue us to own your sin it doesn't mean celebrating your sin if you're celebrating your sin you're blind and god's going to break you of that and i hope he breaks you graciously and not harshly that's quite the contrary the christian who goes to a, a sexual addiction group is not identifying as an addict in order to glory in his addiction but in order to be honest about it in order to be known in the midst of it in order to to deal with it faithfully um I have a friend who's an alcoholic. He's been an alcoholic his whole life. He's been sober almost 20 years, has not had a drink, and yet every day he feels the pull of alcohol on his soul. And, and drunkenness is a big deal. Drunkenness is a sin. You're not supposed to be drunk. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. And, and yet when he identifies as an addict, he is not doing that to glorify alcoholism or to glorify um, drunkenness. He, it's quite the contrary. He's doing it because he's in the battle of his life every day for his soul to actually live out the promise of God to broken, damaged people like us. Uh, and he's still an addict. He, he will tell you, even though he has not drunk in, in almost 20 years, he still feels the pull and he knows if he has one drink, he's not having one drink. He's having 15 drinks. He's having 20 drinks. He's going to drink until he passes out because he knows as an alcoholic, his brain has been rewired in such a way that it makes him insane with, with one sip. And he loses all judgment. He loses all control and he keeps going until he crashes and burns and he can never drink again because he's an addict. Simul Eustace at Picator. He's a Christian. He's loved by God. He is righteous and worthy in God's sight, even though he is that damaged. I've shared about my own struggle through the years with pornography. And even though it has been, you know, over a decade since I've really looked at porn, um, you know, I am still an addict. And, and I own that. And I think I'm free in Christ to own that. And, and, and it's not something I'm proud of, uh, far from it. Uh, but I know I'm still an addict because... I know when I walk into the Cheshire because I'm having drinks with somebody and I have to go to the restroom and I have to go by that, that empty room that nobody is ever in with all the, the, the kind of Rothko or the, the kind of like Andy Warhol-esque, you know, Queen Elizabeth's on the wall in the big bank of completely unmonitored internet connections. I know what goes through my mind. I think I could get away with it here. Those aren't monitored. And by God's grace, I keep walking. But that tells me it's still inside of me. I have, been, I have been holding this monster down with a pillow over its face for over a decade, and it's still not dead. It's not going to die. I might have to be holding this pillow down for 50 more years. I don't like that thought. That's the symbol. That's that et peccator. And a sinner. It's still inside of me. I'm responsible for it. I can't do anything about it except continuing to mortify it day in and day out by the grace of God, believing what God says to be true of me, that yes, I am a sinner, but I am also justified and worthy 
in the eyes of God and my Father in heaven loves me. You say, Greg, that's an incredible victory. Years of faithfulness. And yet, to me, it doesn't feel like a victory. For me, I know what goes on in my thought life. I know what I feel. I have a pretty good idea of in which circumstances I am most likely to fail and to fall and to turn against God. I know all the images that I can still store up in my brain in a given day or a given week or a given month. I know my own sinfulness. It is so palpable. It is always with me. And yet, in God's mercy, it is that sinfulness that God uses more than anything else to keep me utterly close and dependent upon him. You know, you, you look at your sin and you think, gosh, you know, I've got this thing in my life. And maybe for you, it's, it's a struggle with mental illness. Maybe with you, it's a struggle with a substance. Maybe with you, it's something sexual. Maybe with you, it's a struggle with bitterness and a struggle to forgive somebody. And, and you keep seeing this ugly thing rear its head again and again in your relationships. And you just think, God, why won't you take this away from me? God, I'm praying to you. Lord, take this from me. Help me walk with you. Make my walk with you more easy. Help me, help me be more faithful to you, Lord. And, and, and yet, sometimes you're like, you're like Paul with your thorn in your flesh and you're saying, Lord, take this thing from me. And yet, perhaps God is speaking to you and he's saying, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And if that thing, whatever it is in your life that you hate, and you need to keep hating it, and you need to keep fighting against it because it's a struggle of your soul, but if that is the one thing that God is using to bring you to your knees and utter dependence and faith in Jesus, then how would God be so cruel as to take away from you the one experience or struggle that is keeping you close to him? Because more than your obedience, he wants your heart. And out of that heart change, your obedience will flow. But it's not easy. He doesn't promise easy. He doesn't say that his power is made perfect in your successes. He says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's what they said was the main difference in the 17th century between the Anglicans and the Puritans. The Anglicans asked forgiveness for their sins. But the Puritans asked forgiveness for their righteousness. Because they knew that pride was so strong inside of them. And every time they would start to gain some control over some area of sin or bastion of iniquity in their life, they would feel the pride come in. And then they'd have to ask God not just to forgive them for the sin, but to forgive them for their self-righteousness in which they are patting themselves on the back for every last stretch of Christian growth. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ It's supposed to feel like dying, like being crucified. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's the difference between strength Christianity and weakness Christianity. Strength Christianity says, I am strong in the Lord. I am a conqueror. I am going to name it. I am going to claim it. It's going to be all about healings and about the power of God and how I feel him flowing through my system, experiencing God. And, uh, and weakness Christianity, which says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, now and at the hour of my death, because I am broken and there is nothing righteous in me. But I am looking outward to you, Lord. In my weakness, I am dependent upon you. I am still a sinner, but I know I am justified by Christ and I will rest in you, Lord. In my weakness, I pray you will display your strength. 
read a story, heard a story about a dad and his teenage son. And the dad had tapped gently on the door of his boy's room, walked in, his 17-year-old son had done something shameful, and his father had found out about it. And as he stepped into the room, he closed the door, and he sat down on the bed next to his son, and he told his son that he knew all about it, that he had heard everything. And as he caught his son's eye, the boy started weeping. He felt so much shame in being exposed in his sin and in the things that were so embarrassing about what he had done. And his dad looked at his son, and for the first time in his life, he understood that as a dad, he was the bigger sinner in the room because he had done the exact same things and he had never told a soul. And so he too wept. And he admitted his own sin and his own failings to his son in those very same areas. And for the first time in their lives, they were not a dad and his son, but rather two sinners, two brothers who were struggling together, who knew that they both desperately needed Jesus. And at that moment, friends, the gospel never looked more beautiful to either one of them. Paul is pleading with you. Embrace a weakness Christianity that owns the damage and owns the sin and yet rests and basks in the love of a God who declares us righteous. Simulustus et peccator. Paul's saying you've already been justified if you believe and yet even apostles still identify with their sin. Not building an identity on it but acknowledging it as a part of their story. And it's only when you hold these two together that you really experience the transforming power of the Christian life. The knowledge that, that you're a sinner, that, that, that we're moral failures, not just back then, but right now. It can give you an incredible humility, which fuels Christian growth. Remember how Jesus taught us to always take the lowest seat at the table. Whenever you're in an argument, a conflict, whenever there's somebody that you cannot get along with, take the lowest seat. That's what the gospel does. Because you're a sinner and you can take the lowest seat because you know that God has clothed you with honor and righteousness and you don't need it from someone else. How that defuses conflicts when you can actually lean into a conflict instead of backing away because you know you're both a sinner and so you can't judge the person and yet you're also righteous and so you don't need to be afraid to actually lean in and confront, to not have to win an argument, to not to already have advanced permission to have been wrong. The church's first membership vow that people just took today is that you promise that you're a sinner in the sight of God. Friends, that's the only vow I have ever kept perfectly. And God is okay with that because he has forgiven my sin and given me a new heart and a desire to respond with blood-bought loyalty to his love. When you know you're a moral failure, but nevertheless justified. It changes you. It gives you not just a humility, but a gentleness because you know what it's like to be wrong. It gives you a kindness and a compassion because you receive kindness and compassion when you were wrong. You receive that from God himself. You know what it's like to receive mercy and so you can give mercy to those who come to you 
owning their own failings. Because when you know that in your wrongness you've been loved and accepted and declared righteous, even though you're a moral failure, you've been embraced by your Savior. He covers your shame. He washes you. He clothes you. He declares you worthy, worth every blessing on account of what he's done for you. When you know that, when you can step into situations with a courage that you didn't know you could have because your life has a foundation that is honest and yet loved. Simul Eustace, et peccator. It changes how you do life. Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, first in Auschwitz, then in Buchenwald, he never got over the fact that when the Christian prisoners went to the gas chambers, he says they were singing hymns and had joy on their faces. And he never got over it because the gospel changes you. My prayer is that you would taste this, that you would dig deeply into it, that you would swallow, the, that you would drink this Kool-Aid and not the other and be filled with love and hope with a God who has favor upon you because he sees you and he loves you and he's crazy about you and nothing can take that away from you. And on the worst day of your life, brothers and sisters, this gospel is the thing that will enable you to get out of bed and face the hardship willingly. Because this love of Jesus cost him something. He says, the life I give in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It cost him Jesus. And he gave up Jesus willingly to gain you. Philip Yancey tells a story about a friend of his named George. For years, George ran a bookstore more out of a desire to stay abreast of new books than from any profit motive, which is a good thing because the bookstore never made any money and eventually closed. But if a customer piqued his curiosity, George would issue an invitation down the block to the Greasy Spoon Diner where he liked to hold court. And he spent much of every day there, you know, drinking massive amounts of coffee to nurse his his caffeine addiction and smoking back-to-back cigarettes back in the days when restaurants actually allowed you to chain smoke inside. And, And nobody scolded him about those two addictions because they knew that it's what he was relying on to deal with the much bigger addiction to alcohol. And he had been sober. He would sell, he would actually, uh, uh, um, invite everybody over on the anniversary of his sobriety every year to his own home to throw a party each year because the doctor had warned him that one more alcoholic binge would likely kill him. Yancey says George broke the mold. He was reared Mennonite and a pacifist on a farm in Kansas, and so he rebelled by joining the army and going to fight in Vietnam. He then settled into the big city of Chicago, and then there were his many problematic liaisons. And yet, he says, my chain-smoking gay alcoholic friend George knew as much theology as a seminary professor He told me he had made his first tentative steps back to God by acknowledging a higher power in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then one day, while surfing the channels on a cable television network, he inexplicably stopped at a religious program. A choir was singing the invitation hymn, Just As I Am. George put down the remote control, and he listened to the first verse, and then he listened to the second. Just As I Am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. He watched as people came forward 
edging sideways through the narrow rows of seats and weaving their way down toward the front where counselors greeted them and guided them in prayer. And it was familiar sight for George, a throwback to his childhood, but for some reason, this time, he kept watching. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt part, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And George said this, said, that night I fathomed for the first time in my life the truth that God loves me just as I am. Everyone else loves me with strings attached. I disappoint my family because I've never realized my potential in school, in career, in the bad choices that I've made. I disappoint my friends. I disappoint my doctors in the way I treat my health with the cigarettes, with the drinking, with the poor diet. I'm poor, I'm fat, I'm ugly, and I'm old, but only God loves me just as I am. And friends, it's the truth. Because God loves you, not to use you, but because he loves you and he sees you and he's not horrified by what he sees. If you have Jesus, you are clothed and you are righteous, simul justus, Et peccator. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithful love, for your love and compassion to sinners like us. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus to cleanse us. Thank you for his righteousness credited to us. And I thank you, Father, that judgment day has moved from the future to the past for those who claim your name. We consecrate to you now the elements on this table. Lord, preach the gospel to us as a people, as your family, that we might bring the gospel and the welcome of Jesus to this city. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.